The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was relationships, and Disciple First hosted a track called Developing a Disciple Making Culture. That's where today's audio was recorded. Make sure to go online and download a free ebook from their team called Invest in a Few, which is about practical ways to disciple people by investing into just a few. It's available for free at discipleship.org slash disciple first. Discipleship.org slash disciple first. Here's today's audio. So the last session, we talked about the fact that to have a disciple-making movement in your church, it is you as a leader being a cultural farmer. You've got to farm the culture. And so we spent a whole session looking at the culture of disciple-making. Now today, or at least in this session, we're going to go to the very top of the org chart and we're going to say that the culture is changed from the top. Culture is shaped at the top. So we're going to talk about the leader, the pastor, and we're going to work our way down. One of the ways we say it at First Beaumont is we say it's a top-down, inside-out movement. If you're going to farm the culture, right, the image of Jesus' parable of the, the seeds and, the, and as he throws them and how they fall in certain places and you strategically then need to think about how you move forward with this. Let me introduce myself. I know a few people in there. There's Robert Mullins. Good to see you, brother. Um, I am, I know he, he mentioned I'm a professor of systematic theology. I've been full-time with Liberty University for 12 years. Uh, I am a subject matter expert for theology too. Any Liberty grads here? Any Liberty classes at all? Took a class. All right. Took a class. Got one. Took a class. Largest evangelical school in the world. We have over 100,000 students. We have about 10,000 in the grad school, the School of Divinity graduate level. Um, I teach theology too, but I'm also the face, the video, the curriculum development for that class. And disciple making and the culture of it is integrated all the way through. So if you think of, if you've had some seminary, you think of practical theology, practical theology would be taking belief and moving it into the area of conviction. All right, a belief is what you trust to be true. A conviction is a belief that's lived out. You actually do something with it. And disciple making is a part, is a, a, a linchpin for the pastoral role in the church. Right? We, we, we don't have a choice of what our ministry philosophy is. It's Ephesians 4. If you get interviewed, if you're a pastor in this room and you're going from job interview to another one and they're asking you, as they should, what's your ministry philosophy, biblically, you don't have a choice. It's, it's to make disciples. Ephesians 4 says your job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So what is ministry? Disciple making. I, I love training. Uh, I've trained a lot of hunting dogs. Any hunters in the room? All right, good. I love uh, bird hunting and all sorts of hunting. My wife and I uh, grew up around horses. My wife horse showed for Texas A&M University, and I spent my 20s on the back of a horse training horses. A uh, little, little extra money there going through seminary. We have four horses and three daughters, and uh, we, we love our animals. I love training. I love training. Interesting little fact of this year, something got exciting happened in uh, 2018. Justify won the 150th Belmont Stakes in New York City by 
a, a length and three-fourths, making him the, what is it, 13th triple crown winner in history, uh, just four years after American Pharaoh did it. It's another sweep of the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness, and the Belmont. Justify won it starting from the rail, and that hadn't happened in 45 years. Starting from the rail, who did it? Secretariat did that. Justify is only the second horse in history to capture the Triple Crown undefeated following Seattle Slough in 1977. Justify was 6-0, the first horse to sweep the series without racing at age two. Justify beat nine others to win. That's more competition than any other Triple Crown has had in ever in the history of the Belmont. Justify defeated 35 horses in all those. Now, the question, what is the secret sauce? The secret sauce was the trainer. Good genetics can only get you so far. Anybody know who the trainer of American Pharaoh and Justify was? His name was Bob Baffert, is Bob Baffert. He joins um, Sonny Jim Fitzsimmons as the only trainers to win in history, two triple crowns, right? It was his fifth attempt to, to try to win the triple crown, uh, which is the most of any rider, any trainer has ever done. That horse was purchased for $500,000. He earned $800,000 at Belmont. That gave him a lifetime earning of $3.798 million. His breeding fee is $150,000 for a live fall. If you want to buy all of his breeding rights, well, you're going to pay $75 million. Now, the reason I tell you that is the trainer was the secret. And what we are encouraging you to think through in the culture of the church is that we've got to get back to the lost art of disciple making. And it starts from the top down, inside out. If you are here and you have other programs and you've gone to other conferences, this isn't a program. But all the other programs work that way. If you go to a Celebrate Recovery launching thing, they're going to say the pastor's got to be a part of it. If you go to an Awana club, you're watch, launching Awana club, they're going to tell you at the Awana club training, the pastor has to be in it. Um, but, but those are small fries compared to this because this is the very heart of the church, this disciple making. D.L. Moody. I'm not named after him, no relation. The rich ones in Galveston, Texas, or the theologically rich in Chicago, I'm not connected to either. But anyway, he said it is better to train 10 people than to do the work of 10 people. Isn't that good? Amen. You know, Jesus' math is disciple-making. The word disciple is matheteo, Greek word for to, to multiply, to make disciples, to apprentice. It's the best mathematics, but culture is shaped at the top. The leader of the ministry shapes the culture of that ministry. It's true in the business world. The CEO shapes the culture of the company. It's true in the sports world. The, the head coach shapes the culture of that team. It is the leader's responsibility to shape the culture. And in the church, it's the pastor's responsibility to shape the culture of the church. It is the role of every pastor to be the keeper of the culture, to embody the culture, to model the culture, to champion the culture, to defend the culture at all costs. So for many, uh, the pastor is the first introduction to their church. And that's just a basic practical thing, right? When they meet you as a church, they're seeing the pastor preach. They meet him outside uh, at a greeting area. 
Uh, too many people come into contact with the church, meeting the pastor only three times. They get baptized, they get married, and they have their funeral service. The first time they throw water on you, the second time they throw rice, and the third time they throw dirt, right? <laughs> and that is the pastor. The pastor shapes the culture of the church. So, Real quick, can you be a disciple-making, can you have a disciple-making culture, can you shape a disciple-making culture if you are not the lead pastor and you're here, and I've talked to some that are and some that are not, can you shape the culture? Only the lead pastor can shape the culture of the entire church. However, you can shape a disciple-making culture for your segment of your church, and that's a big deal. So when it be comes to creating a disciple-making culture in the church, the lead pastor must lead by example. You must be a disciple-maker. And we're going to talk about what that looks like. You must lead the way. So what does it mean to lead the way? When key leaders are engaged and you're leading the way and you're modeling it, you, you, you give cues of what to get excited about, what to talk about, to see fruit from. Tom Landry the famous coach of the Dallas Cowboys defined coaching, training, as making men do what they don't want to do to accomplish what they do want to accomplish. And the pastor, that's an apt description of the pastoral task. You're going to be getting men and women to do things many times they don't want to do to accomplish the very thing they do want to accomplish. Let me, let me give you just a small example of that. If godliness were a scale of 1 to 10 and your people want to pursue godliness... Without training trainers in your church, their godliness can't get above a one or a two because the, the Christian life is meant to be given away. You're meant to be a river, not a reservoir. And so to go from a two to a three to a four in your godliness, you've got to be a trainer yourself. So what you're really doing in discipling as a pastor, as a lead pastor, discipling your church, leading your church to become a disciple-making movement, you are giving them the tools of their own spiritual growth. We wonder why our churches have a tendency to be a mile wide and an inch thick. It's because we haven't trained them to be trainers. Uh, I have a double degree from Texas A&M University in chemistry and biology. I thought I knew chemistry, and then I taught chemistry. And 20 years later, after teaching high school advanced, advanced placement chemistry, I still know stoichiometry and anions and cations because I taught it. And so when a Christian is birthed, right, and they're baptized, they get to about a one. And if you can disciple them to be disciplers, then go to a two. And as they start discipling others, they themselves get to a three, a four, or five. All right, so this is the dynamic we're talking about in terms of pastoring from the top. Think about it. Jesus was the model for his disciples. They, they mimicked him. They, he told them, imitate me, Right? He told them, do what I've done. Walk as I've walked. 1 John and the Gospel of John. Paul understood that when he said, imitate me. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Discipling demands that we follow the resurrected Christ. All right, so let me, let me tell you my story. And then we're going to get into some convictions you need to have. Uh, I wasn't raised in the church. Um, I did not have a... Christian family. I get into college lost as I could be, but real smart, real good in school, 4.0, dating who I wanted to date, working, you know, as I, as, I, as I could to accomplish my goals, my life, my way, my will be done, my kingdom come. You know, that was my charge, captain of my own soul. And then I hit a wall. I hit a wall my second semester, entered into a time of depression, 
suicidal thinking. And I met a Christian, a, a woman in the dorm there. She's about four years older than me. She saw me in my depression. She came over and she engaged me. And she shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with me. I immediately uh, got flipped over on top of myself. Um, and as I came to faith, the, first, the next Christian I met was a campus crusade leader on the campus of University of North Texas. I was at UNT one year. A guy over a Coca-Cola told me, he said, tell me your story. What did Jesus do? And I got so excited to tell about the resurrected Christ showing up in my life. Within two weeks, he handed me over to a guy named Todd. And Todd showed me how to live the Christian life and what the expectations of the commission is. I don't even call it the Great Commission. It's just the commission. We call it Matthew 28. We say Great Commission as if there's a bunch of other things we're to be doing. It's the commission. He says it's not the great suggestion, the great omission. It's just the job. Make disciples of all nations. And so during the week, we would share our faith in very strategic ways. If somebody came to faith, we started discipling them. That is discipling, taking a non-disciple and discipling them to disciple. Fast forward five years, this is what I know as church. Church is share the gospel about the one who saved your soul and rescued you. And as you do, people... The wind, the, the wind will shift every now and again, and people will come to faith. Sometimes it's like spitting in the wind. But when you share the gospel, sometimes you can see it in their eyes. The Holy Spirit's right there working, a double witness. And, and, and they, they come to faith in Christ, and they give their life to Christ, and then you start training them to reproduce yourself in them. And on Sundays, you gather at this place called a worship center, and you hear from a master teacher, but what you're doing is you're praising the resurrected Christ who's been working in your life all week which is, by the way, the bookends of the Great Commission, right? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says, Matthew 28, 19. I've got all the power. I, got all, I hold all the cards. Therefore, make disciples, baptize them, lead them to Jesus, teach them to obey, teach them in the, in the environment of accountability. And watch me. There's a, there's a last verb. He says, watch, behold, Greek word edu, behold, I'll be with you to the very end of the age. People come to me and they say, I just don't see Jesus working in my life. He's not. He works through disciple making. As you lead your people to be disciple makers as the lead pastor, you are giving them the resurrected Christ work through them where they get to be that river. They get to see Jesus show up and work through them. And then I got hired as a pastor of a Baptist church. And I was young, 23 years old, and this Baptist church had a lot of extraneous motion in sports, in training a horse. We talk about extra motion that doesn't mean anything. There were all these things. And, man, they would, they would go to blows over committees and over what color the carpet was and the renovation program. Um, when, when, the, when the deacons got together in a deacon meeting at that church, they fought over all this stuff, all this passion, but zero disciple-making. And as a young man, I'm looking at it going, what? Where, why are we not doing what Jesus did? He said he had a, a message, but he also had a method. Fast forward three years, I'd had enough. And in that righteous discontent, to quote Bill Hybels, I started, a, I did a church plant. And as we did a church plant, we just made disciples and came together in worship on Sunday to praise the risen Christ who worked in our life. And we, we got rid of all the extraneous motion. Fast forward seven years, First Beaumont called and said, we need help. And I asked, I said, how desperate are you? Because there's a clear path. If, we're, if, if you want me, we're going to 
We're going to do what Jesus did. I'm, I don't want church models. I want Jesus' model. I don't want decisions. I want disciples. I don't want programs. I want a process. And they said yes. And uh, the church uh, grew from <laughs> about 400 down to 200. <laughs> and now we're 800. Because after a decade, especially the 20 and 30-somethings, can sink their teeth into, you are the church. We're not... This building isn't, we are the church. And as the church makes disciples who make disciples, it gives that 20, 30, 40 something a part of the kingdom of the, the priests of Christ. This priesthood of the believers. Where they actually get to be a part of the kingdom building as Jesus planned it. And they grow and everybody grows. And so the church over the last 10 years has gone from 200 on up. But what I'm impressed with is we have a small, small army of about 500 disciple makers. And we, we go through and we can talk later about the transition of how do you go, you know, sometimes we have too many disciplers and not enough disciplees. Sometimes we have too many disciplees and not enough disciplers. But that's a great problem to have, this pendulum swinging. But it starts with me as the lead pastor. And if, if you could invert the pyramid, right, instead of like this, go it upside down, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're starting from the bottom, you, and working your way up. And as, as it comes, it gets larger and larger. Jesus was the original, original pyramid marketer. And you disciple. Here's how it looked. Year one, I discipled six guys. I batted about 300. So about out of that six, two of them became disciple makers. The next year, I did a little better. I batted about 500, discipled six more. At the end of three years, we had around 30 disciplers because of exponential growth. At that point, year three, I had wives of these 30 men coming. So I don't know what you've done, but my husband is completely different. All he talks about in his place of work is sharing his faith and discipling somebody. One on two, one on three. Not large groups, small. Think small. Have a big enough vision to think small. And he's like, I, I, these ladies said, I want in. And I said, okay. And the women at that point, there had been some discipleship groups, but at that point, the women started discipling each other, and now they've outshined the guys uh, in many different levels. So uh, that's how it looks. Um, we built, we left our downtown campus, had 155,000 square feet. In the summer of 2011, we had a $14,000 one month electricity bill. $14,000, not $1,400. $14,000 electricity bill. Our church is the church that Paige Patterson grew up in. Our church is the church that Chuck Kelly, the president of New Orleans Seminary, grew up in. We've had four Southern Baptist Convention presidents that come through our church. And all that led them to think too highly of themselves and pride comes before the fall. And man, it, it tanked. In the 1990s, they became deacon-possessed, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and God broke them even more. And then they were desperate enough to say, let's do it. Let's not get some fancy new church growth scheme. Let's just do it the way Jesus said to do it. And they followed, and it's been great. So what are some of these convictions that disciple-making pastors have? And what are the four essential practices of a disciple-making pastor? Let's get a little practical here. Now, the ten convictions, we're going to put them on the screen here, but these are actually taken from this leadership forum. 
So to speak at this leadership forum, you have to agree to these 10 things, right? This is, this is a gathering of like-minded disciple makers from across the nation committed to igniting disciple making movements and to be a part of the core team. You have to agree to these things. They're very important. Number one, the gospel is our message. The good news is focused on Jesus' death and resurrection. And Jesus has died and wants to resurrect you in that process. Part of the gospel is that you don't just need a tweak, you need a transformation. This is built upon the idea of being born again. Built upon a gospel of life change. Number two, we are compelled to be and make disciples of Jesus. We believe that Jesus is supreme, both as his message and his model, right? To be a Christian means you believe what Jesus said to believe. You do what Jesus said to do. And Paul, in the book of Romans, took it even deeper. He said, we aren't just holding to the core beliefs and actions of Jesus. We are actually in Jesus, in Christi. That was revolutionary. No other religion says that. You know that? I teach uh, world religions for liberty every now and again. Between the, the Muslims, the Buddhists, the Hindus, the Zoroastrians, nobody teaches you that you, beyond the core beliefs of Buddha, the core beliefs of Muhammad, in Christ, we don't just merely believe in the core teachings of Jesus. We are in Jesus, right? I am a little Christ, and Christ is in me, and I'm in Him. And if I've got the Holy Spirit of God in me, that huge power source, the resurrected Christ working through me, you can better believe it's a big job and it's important. And what is it? Is Christianity, avoid the big sins, sew up on Sunday morning, give some money, you're good. Is that Christianity? Oh, well, maybe we go to the committee on Monday. Is that Christianity to show up and sit, show up and sit, show up and sit? We actually in the church of Jesus... <laughs> Because we're not pushing disciple-making, we actually push non-movement. And our Sunday schools and our committees become <clears throat> aquariums where we keep our fish. And every now and again, we lead pastors. I'm preaching to myself here. We tap the side of this, the, the cage, and oh, we're so impressed because they move around a little bit. And we put a little fish in there, and we're good. Right? That is not Christianity. That's not the great adventure. That's not the call. Number three, Jesus is the model for life and ministry. This is a desire to see that we aren't encouraging, trying to ignite some church model. This is Jesus as the model, right? Jesus showed us how to live, how to make disciples. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Over and over again, Jesus says, follow me, follow me, follow me. And Next session or two, we're going to talk about the disciples' path and even the church's path. And in Matthew 4, 19, you actually have a pretty clean path. Come, I will make you fishers of men. There's movement. Have you come? Right? Are you devoted to Jesus? I will make you. Have you been developed by Jesus? Right? Fishers of men. Have you been deployed into the mission field in your church? There's movement. You want to go around the bases? That's Those are the base hits. And then the Ultimately, the model is the home run is when the disciple becomes the discipler. Huge. Number four, love is the driving motive. <clears throat> this is a great time to acknowledge that in the book of Matthew, I just quoted Matthew 4.19, you have some great statements. Right? Matthew 16, you have what's called the great confession. 
You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Peter says. That's how you get in the church. You don't get in the church because of a pedigree or because of a portfolio or because of a, a resume or because how smart you are. You get in the church because the Spirit of God revealed to Peter that who Jesus was. Jesus said, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but the Spirit did. So the Spirit leads you to a place where you can confess. You know that Jesus is the Christ, the chosen one, the Son of the living God, the divine Messiah. And then you fast forward from 16 to 22 and you get the great commandment. Summarize the whole Bible. Summarize all the commandments. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Right in the great commandment you have the core of what it means to be in these relationships. Disciple making is love, especially if, if you're a lead pastor. If you love your people and you want them to grow godly, you've got to get them to the place where they're discipling. If they have kids, they automatically have no option but to disciple. The word disciple is a verb and a noun. The word parent is a verb and a noun. A parent parents, a disciple disciples. These words are connected. And when it comes down to it, what makes a parent parent their child? Love. What makes a disciple disciple their children or their, their young new believers? in the? What makes a spiritual parent disciple young believers? Love. You love them. Number five, verifiable fruit is the measure. Verifiable fruit is the measure. This, I told you, love is the trajectory of Matthew. Well, fruit and love are the trajectory of the Gospel of John. In the original language of Greek, in John 8, 13, and 15, you have a very similar Greek construction where Jesus says to his disciples, he says, others will know that you're my disciples if you... Great little pocket sermon if you ever need one. John 8, others will know that you're my disciples as you abide in my word. John 13, others will know that you're my disciples as you bear, as you love one another. John 13. You remember John 15? Others will know that you're my disciples. Same construction in John 8, 13, and 15 is you bear much fruit. Now, is that fruit helping somebody at the who had a hurricane? We've had so many. We've had 1,500 people come down to Beaumont to help us recover after Hurricane Harvey. Is that the fruit he's talking about? What's the context? The fruit of the vine. What's the context? John 15, verse 1. I am the vine dresser. Sorry, I'm the vine. My father is the vine dresser. You are the branches. He remains in me and I in them. He will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And then he goes on. He explains the fruit is disciples. Other grapes on the grapevine. That's, that's the fruit we're talking about. And that's the measure. Number six on the list here. The Holy Spirit power is the means. Uh, let's go back to John. John 14 and 16. Whenever you talk about a doctrine like the Holy Spirit, whenever you have a doctrine, uh, the key to that doctrine is the, the seeds of the doctrine. The, the classic text, said us doctrinize, how you say it on the seminary level, the seeds of the doctrine. If you're going to study the Holy Spirit, you go to Jesus' words in John 14 and 16, Paul's words in Romans 8. Interesting thing about those three passages. The context is suffering, number one. In John 14, John 16, he says, Hey, they're going to kill you like they killed me. They're going to think they're doing good. They're going to hang you up. They're going to leave you out and to, for the animals. They're going to cut you in half. In John 8, or sorry, Romans 8, he says the same thing. There's going to be suffering. You're going to suffer. And in the middle of that suffering, I'm going to give the Holy Spirit. Now he calls, in John 14 and 16, he calls the Holy Spirit the paraclete, right? Parakleo, Greek word for kaleo, call. 
the called alongside one, para, parachute, para, alongside, kaleo, called alongside. He calls you, he says, I'm going to give you one right alongside of you. Why do we need the Holy Spirit to come alongside of you? A couple of clues there. He says, I'm going to give you another helper, another paraclete. Who's the first paraclete? Jesus. Jesus is the first paraclete. He comes alongside of you in the context of suffering and witnessing. John 14, 15, and 16 are all about how when you witness and you try to take a non-disciple and disciple them, you're going to get pushback. You're going to get friction. And as you get that friction, you remember you have a double witness with the Holy Spirit. And when you get hurt, you have a comforter. The comforting language of John 14 and 16 is in the area of witnessing. As you get beat up in a world that doesn't want you saying the name of Jesus, the Spirit of God is going to be a balm of Gilead to help smooth that over in your heart. Now, if you fast forward to Hebrews chapter 10, you see the word paraclete show up again. It's in John 10 when he says, Let us consider how we can continue meeting together, not forsaking the assembling, all the more encouraging and spurring. I'm a, I like horses. I have spurs. That's where you get a little poke in the side, you know. And in Christianity, we got to have account. We got to have a stomach to have accountability of some. Oswald Chambers used to call it is some, such a such a rough thing to be poked in the side by some provoker of God. I love that. Mm. That's tough, but that's disciple making. That's the negative. The positive is the word parakletos. He says the church exists to come together to paraclete each other. So Jesus is the first paraclete, Holy Spirit is the second paraclete, and you are the third. And that is the core of the church. We help each other grow in our faith. And here's the truth. If I don't help you, I don't get a grow. If I don't help you grow here, I don't get a grow. We're interdependent. This isn't an independence thing. This is an interdependent thing. The more I give, the more I get. You can't outgive God. Number eight or number seven, the church is the environment. Church is the environment. The church um, is where it all happens. And the church isn't a place. The church is a people on mission, working together. Hebrews 10, gathering. I love how Hebrews 10 verse 23 says, let us consider how to spur one another. When you come to a worship service, you ought to gather considering how to help each other grow. When you come selfishly and you say, what do I need? What do I need? What do I need? You don't get much. But when you come to a worship service or a small group meeting or a D group, a discipling meeting, considering chewing on how you can help each other grow and you have that as your conviction, that's how you're living life, you get manifold back. And the church is the environment by which that is stirred. I don't, here in Nashville, it's getting kind of cold down in Beaumont. We're, we're basically West Louisiana because so many Cajuns over there. Man, it got cold, got down in the uh, high 40s in Beaumont last week. And everybody I know on Facebook started posting their gumbo. Everybody's making gumbo. And my wife said, we got to make some too. I said, okay. If you ever made gumbo, you make this roux. And one of the keys to making a good gumbo is you don't burn the roux. You stir it. And the church is the environment by which you stir up disciple making. Number eight, equipping leaders is the linchpin of the movement. As the leaders go, so the church goes. And one of the beauties of disciple making is you're discipling young leaders to come up. Women and men who are going to be your primary disciple makers. I talked to my staff this last week. I said, in the last number of years, what have you seen as the secret sauce beyond disciple making? 
winsome leaders who make it seem so exciting and so contagious. And if you want to be contagious, take your greatest contagions and make them disciple makers. We have an elder-led, we're congregation-ruled elder-led. We have six elders. The congregation has certain decisions they make. Elders make the rest. All these six elders are disciple makers. We require our elders to have reproduced themselves at least twice and one of their disciples has to have reproduced themselves. A second generation disciple maker. That's a leading discipler. And as you look for emerging leaders to move into that, this contagious Christian movement, they're going to find life. I'm unapologetic in saying, give your life to the church. It's more important than any, we have a lot of refineries. It's more important than any refinery job, any engineering job, any soccer game at some park. It is the most important thing you can be a part of, the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus died so you could be a part of his church. So don't be apologetic of inviting young leaders to be disciplers. Number nine, as you can tell, definitions are vitally important. Our definition of disciple-making is helping people to trust and follow Jesus. The whole process from conversion to maturity and multiplication. And our definition of a disciple is a person who is following Christ. They're being changed by Christ. And they're committed to the mission of Christ. And with that, we get devoted, developed, deployed. A 3D disciple. When we say 3D, we mean what? Fully orbed. Not flat. Fully mature. That This person who's competent in, in these things and can help others do it as well. And then lastly, Scripture is our basis. All this is in Scripture. All the material you need to know. Jesus said in the Great Commission, teach them to obey all that I commanded. Scripture is our guidebook. Now, before I move into the practices... Let me highlight from this one into the practices what is a huge missing part of the commission of Jesus in Matthew 28. I'm going to quote it again, and you tell me what I leave out. Ready? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I've commanded you, and I will be with you to the very end of the age. Where in your church, pastor, if you're a lead pastor, where in your ministry do you teach people to obey? That isn't the same as teach them to apply. You know that, right? Apply is a maybe. It's a suggestion. Obey is, that's parenting. I don't give my kids, okay, if you want, go clean your room and go to bed. I know it's 9 o'clock at night. Uh, go, maybe. I want you to apply my encouragement. No, I make them obey. Right? Now, we want them to obey out of the right reasons, but the church of Jesus Christ has lost her stomach in America for accountability. And as you, as the lead pastor, you've got to place yourself in accountability, under accountability, practicing it, modeling it, modeling transparency, because accountability is the, that's the environment by which obedience occurs. So yeah, I know it's a sloppy term, but spiritual parenting is what we're encouraging. And as you parent somebody, you've got to teach them to obey. And I know you can't do that on a Sunday service. You can't do that in a Sunday school class. If we did it in a Sunday service, then we pastors would preach the same message every week until everybody applied it. And then we'd move on. And that would be crazy. 
But in these one-on-two, one-on-three triads and quads, you can sink your teeth into the accountability. You can have transparency. And you can move as Romans does. You ever study the book of Romans? Romans 1.5 and Romans 16.26 bookend and you have a phrase that says that what the gospel of Jesus Christ has done is led the Gentiles and Jews both to an obedience that comes from faith. So I'll take obedience from my kids that comes from fear, especially if they're about to hurt themselves. I'll take that. Sometimes I just need them to obey and I don't care if they trust me, they just got to do it now. Car's about to hit them. But what I really want my three daughters to do is to obey me because they trust me. I have one in high school, middle school, and elementary. There are different stages of trusting me as their dad, but all three of them have better obey. Amen? Amen. And the same in your spiritual journey. So what are the practices of a disciple-making pastor? In seminary, we had a class at Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, It was called Leading and Managing the Church. I used to jokingly call it bleeding and damaging the church. Just, just saying. Never to the pa- professor's face, but wasn't very practical. And it, and, it, and it basically talked about the three P's of preaching, program, and pastoral care. That's what leading and managing the church has taught at seminaries. At Liberty University, it's almost the same. All right? That isn't biblically uh, the, the greater priorities. You can do all those things every day, all day, and still not make a disciple or create a disciple-making culture. While preaching is important, it's not sufficient. I love preaching, but compared to my disciple-making, I don't produce nearly the amount of fruit as I do and see in the guys I disciple. Right? So Jesus spent four times as much time disciple-making as he did preaching. I I would say, Robert Coleman... He spent 90% of his time discipling 12 Jews, right? So he could reach, I'm looking around the room, all sorts of ethnicities here. He reached down to Beaumont, Texas, down to Nashville, Tennessee. He reached people here by focusing on 12 Jews there. And that, that's impressive. So our job is to be a training group, a, a, a our leading job is to be trainers of trainers, coaches, coaches of coaches, transformers of transformers, right? And the gospel creates that kind of recycling. I've been equipped to be an equipper. And so what are those things? Number one, a disciple-making pastor walks with God as a genuine disciple of Jesus. Starts with you, loving Jesus, working in the, with the resurrected Christ through your life, in your life, in your words, in your actions, towards your kids, towards your spouse, in your life. You start with somebody who is in Christ, right? Others will know that you're my disciple, lead pastor, as you abide in my word. You're consistent in the word as you abide in love. When people meet you, they look in your eyes and they know you have room in your heart for them. Just like Jesus. Jesus was so magnetic that when people looked at him, they said, Jesus has room in his heart for me. There shouldn't be this this pat on the back in the the reception area looking to the next person you're going to love on. You should focus on the people and love people. You should be competent to love. And then John 15, others will know that you're my disciple, pastor, as you bear much fruit. What is the fruit? The fruit is being in Christ. It starts with you being in the vine and consistent there. Number two, a disciple-making pastor reaches his world as a disciple of Jesus. All right, I want you to star this one. 
Craig and I have been on a lot of roundtable discussions with Mr. Lance Crowell in the back, disciple-making coordinator. We've been at a lot of forums. We've been in a lot of think tanks thinking about disciple-making. And when it comes down to it, this is a major part of the secret sauce. When Robert Coleman wrote his book, The Master's Plan of... Have you heard this book? What's that last word? Evangelism. Evangelism. It's about disciple making. I remember reading that in 1995 going, this isn't about evangelism. It's about disciple making. It's about what Todd and Charlie did in my life. But as you unpack the book, right, our church, First Beaumont, we don't talk about evangelism a lot. We train people to share the gospel and they take non-disciples and they disciple them to disciple. Evangelism is inherent in this thing called disciple making. Disciple-making includes both traditionally what is called discipleship and evangelism. If discipleship is your personal growth where you have a, somebody who's pouring into you and evangelism is where a Christian shares the gospel with you, both, by the way, both require a Christian. Before you can know Christ, you've got to know a Christian. Faith comes by hearing. So you know a Christian, my, her name for me was Rhonda, and she led me to Christ. And since she is a female, she handed me off to another Christian named Todd. And Todd discipled me to be a discipler. But the key there is that a disciple-making pastor reaches his world as a disciple of Jesus. And this, this is a heart of it. They, they're, they're, you're looking for people who are far from God and you want to disciple them to be a disciple. You're looking for poppers as a lead pastor. This is a term Craig uses a lot. I love it. It's the idea of like popcorn where you're seeing somebody popping spiritually. They haven't crossed the line of faith, but man, they're interested. Your words are large in their ears. They, they see you as somebody that loves them and they, they haven't crossed the line of faith, but man, they're popping spiritually. And Pour your life into them. Pour your life into them. There's a lot of tools that can be on ramps into disciple making proper. Pour your life into them. Number three is a, two is a big deal. Number three, a disciple making pastor invests in a few to make disciples that make disciples. I've consistently had two groups of two or two groups of three. So four to six guys that I've discipled over the years. Uh, let, let, let me say to you guys, especially if you're in a hard situation, if you're at a church that's, you laughed earlier about it being deacon possessed and that's maybe you, right? You're, you're not running the church. It's other people that are running the church. And those deacons are mostly qualified, but most of them, they, they just, they like the power of it all. Or maybe you don't have any leadership issues and that's a problem. You have no, you have no core and you preach and you visit and you preach, and your life has become a pretty big struggle because it just feels like you're just spinning the wheels. Like, uh, oh, Fred and Wilma Flintstone, that car that they had, right? They, they had no bottom in their feet. I'm like, that's completely inefficient. That thing doesn't work that way. But your church is like the Flintstones car. The beauty of you pouring into a few disciples at a time is, number one, it's a great check on your ego if you're like me and you struggle with that. It's a great check on your frustration if you struggle with that like me. It's a great upfront, high-definition TV view of people growing. I get lots of great texts and emails about sermons. I get the attaboy at the end of a sermon. My Students at Liberty give me encouragements, but I don't get to see them grow like I get to see front row. These men become lovers of their wives, disciplers of their kids, 
uh, breaking free from habitual sin, I get to see that up close in person. And so I love preaching. But I'd, I'd give up disciple making last. I'd give up everything else before I give that up. And I love preaching. And I think it's important. But disciple making, I get to be up close and center watching these people grow. Number four, the last thing here, a disciple making pastor leads the church to make disciples intentionally. You can't, you can't tell them to do what you don't do. Right? Remember that old saying, do what I say, not what I do? That's a terrible parenting motto. And same thing with pastors who don't disciple and lead their churches to disciple. You start doing it and then lead them to do what you do. And that'll stir the gumbo. I think of it like a siphoning effect. When you disciple as a lead pastor, when you're even associate pastor, if you're a youth pastor here and you start discipling a couple of key fathers to help you do the work of disciple making and you're two or three, there's a handful of you unleashed, you're four or five, there's a small army of disciple making dads and you're unleashing them on their own kids and then that kid who doesn't have a dad who's, who's a single parent or whatever, when you unleash that and you create that movement, it, it's like a siphoning effect. It pulls everything, like a vacuum, it pulls everything up into it. Our church is rabid. It's militant about disciple making. They'll never go back because everybody's kind of sucked up into it, especially the parents. And that's huge. So, so let me give you a quick little transition between this and the last thing. We're going we're to talk lastly about the challenges you face as a disciple-making pastor. Why do very few do it? What are the challenges that keep lead pastors from discipling? Uh, let, let, me, let me give you an image. This is an interesting little fact, curiosity. In the Bible, the leaders have a couple of images. One is that of a shepherd and that of a fisherman. Isn't that interesting? Now, over and over, it's the shepherd that gets the most airtime in the Old Testament, isn't it? I mean, think about Christmas story, the shepherds are first there. Think about, go back to David, son of Jesse. God handpicked him, a lowly shepherd boy. Moses, shepherd, on and on and on. That's the kind of leaders God wants from the Old Testament. Shepherds are great leaders. During Jesus' ministry on earth, he was a shepherd. John 10, 11, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life. As a pastor, you're a shepherd. Jesus said, John 10, 14, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep. My sheep know me. Jesus was a shepherd. Now, here's the curiosity. Jesus did not refer to himself as a good fisherman, but as a good shepherd. So why didn't he choose shepherds? to be the future leaders of the church. Have you ever thought about that? Why fishermen and not shepherds? Again, many of the great leaders were fishermen, er, er, shepherds. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, all good shepherds. Eastern shepherds were the personification of cur courage and dedication. So why did Jesus choose fishermen and not shepherds? Here's my answer. A fisherman is a man on the offense while a shepherd is a man on the defense. So they exist. A fisherman exists for those fish that aren't there yet. And as the leader of the church of Jesus that you have been called upon, commissioned for, ordained, given Holy Spirit, gifting for, you're a fisherman first and then, like Peter, after Peter denies Jesus three times in the reconstitution, reaffirmation of Peter, remember what Jesus said? Feed my sheep. Right? Feed my lambs. So in the book of 1 Peter, he says, shepherd the flock of God. Right? So he tells fishermen 
who are on the offense, got to be. you got to be looking for disciples to make disciples to make disciples. And then you shepherd them once you get them. Fish, fishermen understand the movements of the winds, the spiritual winds. Fishermen, spiritual fishermen understand the water currents. They, they can read experiences. Fishermen know the art of catching animals rather than just keeping them and holding on to them in their little aquariums. Amen? All right, so what are the challenges? Real quick, challenge number one, most pastors have never been discipled themselves. How can you peddle unapplied truth? You can't, and you shouldn't. It's really tough, and I get it, and I hear this more than any other thing. I've never been discipled. Here's the truth. First step for you, get someone to disciple you. Six months, a year, and I love Craig's story because in Oklahoma, he had some of his own church leaders disciple him. That's humility. And what does God do for humility? God gives what to the humble? Grace. grace. You feel like you need grace as a pastor? God gives grace to the humble. So if that's, if that's your issue, man, don't let that be a roadblock. Be discipled. Get someone to train you how to be a disciple maker. All right? Number two, pastors, maybe they've been discipled but they've never been trained to make disciples. The person who discipled them didn't do a very good job. Maybe it was unintentional. What I mean by unintentional is not technical. It was kind of an aside. I've met pastors, hey, my BSM director took me under his wing a little bit, but I don't know how to teach someone to pray. Let me say it this way. I don't know how to teach someone to teach someone to pray. I can pray. I can show you how to pray, but I don't know how to show you how to show him how to pray. And I've never been taught that. Well, you can get training. That's part of the cohort that we offer here is some modeling and some encouragement there and showing how the tools can be used. Uh, this ministry, as well as so many others that are here this week, they offer that for you. This one we can do. Here, this requires somebody to get in your business, walk alongside of you, probably requires somebody more local, somebody who can really help you grow. All right, and the third challenge pastors face in making disciples is pastors are very busy. Amen? <laughs> and I, I hate that. I don't want busyness. I want fruitfulness. But it's the busyness that gets in the way of fruitfulness. The demands, the expectations are high. I hear that all the time. I don't have enough time. But the truth is, this is ministry. Right? I love Steve Jobs in Apple Computer before he passed. He, he said, I am more proud of what Apple said no to than what they said yes to. If this is you, you need to start saying no. I know that is the hardest word in the English language to say. My, I, I told that to my daughters. My 14-year-old is a little smarty pants. He said, no, Daddy, the hardest word in the English language is anti-disestablishmentarianism. I said, what? What would you say? Anti-disestablishmentarianism. I don't know what that means, but that's a long word. And my middle child picked up and said, no, it's supercalifragilistic expialidocious. I said, y'all be quiet. No is hard because we, we like, we like uh, holding on to the things we have. We have a hard time letting people down. We don't want people to get upset at you. If you go to your church and you start saying no to some things, they, they might get upset and leave. But here's the truth. If you want to write a word here, start saying no and then write the word brinkmanship. I like that word because basically you're, you're saying no to your schedule and things on your church's calendar, but you don't want to push them over the edge, right? Brinkmanship is you push people to the brink in church change without pushing them over. But I guarantee you, if you're going to disciple 
If you're going to be a disciple-making church, some things need to change. I'm a fast change. I'm a Band-Aid off fast kind of guy. and You might be a slower guy. But regardless, you've got to change. You've got to move forward. This is movement. This isn't non-movement. This is movement. And your people need changing and so do you. What's the old statement? Uh, people are like diapers. They need changing and for the same reasons. Changing often. We're full of it. And I need changing and I need to grow and I need to have someone come alongside of me. Okay, so we've got a good 20 minutes now to do some assessment. Um, I, if you're a lead pastor, this will be a lot more geared towards you. But if you're within ministry and, and you're thinking about your own pastoral you know, place of influence, um, think about that as we go through these questions. Craig is going to walk you through them. All right, so what we're going to do is we're going to take a few minutes, look at your assessment page. The first two questions here is, of these 10 convictions, which do you agree with and why? Which do you challenge with? Here's the thing. Probably not anybody here going to go, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. <laughs> I guess what I'm asking you to, to think about is, these are convictions a pastor has that motivates him to make disciples, right? I believe that Jesus' model should be our model, right? I can acknowledge it, but not believe it. You, uh, Chris talked a lot about this we believe in conviction. So which of these convictions do you feel in your bones? And which of these convictions do you, I believe it with my head, but I'm, I don't know that I'm living this out. Because if I was really living this out, then I would be doing more on disciple making. You, know, you, know, you understand the question? So I want you to look at those 10 convictions and identify which of the ones that I feel in my bones and then which of the ones that I'm wrestling with. I want to feel in my bones, but I may not because it's not motivating me to action, okay? So this is a personal assessment. I'm not going to ask you to share this with anybody. This is between you and Jesus, okay? So we're, going to, we're just going to be silent for a little while. It's okay to be silent. But I want you to read those through. I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to begin to speak to you. Which of these ten do I feel in my bones? Mark those. Which are the ones I'm struggling with right now? And then I'm going to lead you to the next assessment. So I'm going to give you just a couple of minutes to wrestle with that. Okay? Just look over those right now. Okay, once you've, uh, once you've kind of looked at those convictions, you go ahead and turn to the next part of the assessment. And basically there is a scale from one to ten. And it's asking you to grade yourself on those four practices. And how would I grade myself as far as my walk with God? How much time are you spending in the Word not to get a sermon, but just hear from the Lord, your prayer time, your scripture memory, just your own personal walk with the Lord? How would you grade that? The second one is how do I grade myself on my intentional cultivating of relationships with people far from God. Not, not, and we're not talking about your church's visitation program. How are you befriending people far from the Lord? How would you grade yourself on that? Do you have lost friends? The third one is how do I grade myself on you actually discipling a few people? Are you actually gathering with two, three, four that you're discipling. Could you tell me right now who those people are that you're discipling currently? And then the last one is, how do you grade yourself on you intentionally leading the church to be a disciple making? How much time, thought are you giving to that? 
So just give, take a few minutes to grade yourself on that. Okay, and on the back side, it says for discussion, these challenges that pastors have to, that as far as leading the way and making disciples, they've not been disciples themselves. They've not really been trained to make disciples. They've been trained to preach and do these other things, but not to train to make disciples. Or thirdly, just too busy. Once you take a minute, turn to the person next to you. Again, we should have a good buzz in the room. And just talk about which one of these challenges fits you the most. Which, which one of these is tripping you up? And you know what? It may not even be one of these three. It, you may want to add, you know what's really keeping me back is X. All right? So when you talk about it among yourselves, which one of these challenges do you wrestle with the most of being personally a disciple maker? Okay? Ready? On the count of three. You're going to turn and talk. One, two, three, go. <laughs> let, me, uh, let me hear from you right quick. What are some of the challenges that you feel like you face in, in making disciple, personal disciple making a priority? Just confession time. What are the ones that you struggle with the most? Or not being a disciple yourself? Okay, good. I, I would say that is the number one. As I've talked to pastors across the country, that is the number one. Is most of the time, guys will say, you know, I was never a disciple myself. I'm not really sure what that looks like. I'm not really sure how to do that, you know. Um, so that's, thank you for sharing that. Another one that you struggle with. Yeah. Um, maintenance mentality. Yeah, you're just busy running the operation and not really intentionally investing in people. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Did y'all hear that in the back? He just said, if love is the motivation, if you really love your people, you're going to invest your life in your people. You know, I think about Paul when he's writing to Thessalonians. And he said, like a mother, I drew you to, you know, to like a father, I challenged you. You know, I, we gave you not doing the gospel to our very lives as well. That's, you know, that's the heart of a disciple maker. It's like, I know you. I've been walking with you. I've been pouring my life into you. You know, I had a pastor one time when I was young in the ministry. He said, Craig, always keep the desk between you and your staff. That way it's easy to fire them later on down the line. <laughs> and I just thought that was terrible advice, you know. I mean, even even not even being a pastor yet, I just thought that's awful, you know. And, and yeah, disciple making, I'm just telling you up front, it hurts sometimes. Because yeah. you will pour your life into somebody and they will disappoint you or they'll hurt you. Or they'll stab you in the back on something. You know, that, that is, if that happened to Jesus and it happened to Paul, right? You read this letter. He calls people out at the end. You know, Demas and, you know, all these guys. It's going to happen. But listen, it's worth the risk. Because the greatest joy in my ministry, and I'm, I'm wrapping this up. The greatest joy is not how many we ran on Sunday or what great sermon I had or whatever. The greatest joy when I retire and I'm done with this is to say, you know, that guy and that guy and that guy, I poured my life into them. They love Jesus. They're walking with God. They're carrying the, the mantle. And most pastors have no one to point to because they gave their life to the organization and not to people. Are you with me? Yes. And, and so you see all the listing of burnout and all the re reasons why ministry is toxic. You've seen that list, right? Of all the horrible things of how ministry has ruined pastors. The answer to most of that is disciple making. Because if I'm with a few guys, then I, I've got somebody that listens to me, someone that cares for me. I'm getting back as much as I'm giving out. 
And I, I'm getting on my knees with some guys. I'm praying with them and I, I'm seeing them grow. And that, that prevents me from burnout because I see that my life matters. And listen, you don't have to have a mega church to make, be a disciple maker. You know, so for so long, the, the, the scoreboard has been baptisms and church attendance and money and buildings. And if you wrote any books or not, right, that's been the scoreboard. That's the level of success. But I don't think Jesus cared as much about that as he cared about, oh, God, did you make a disciple? Did you invest your life? And you can do that at any level and be fulfilling the Great Commission. So uh, this whole day was about what is our culture, assessing it, and then saying the things that shape the culture, number one, it's shaped at the top. So are you as a leader leading the way? Now, tomorrow morning, we're going to come back and we're going to do probably the most, um, we're going to dive into Scripture, and what we're going to do is we're going to look at Jesus's process of how, what was a disciple as he defined it and how did he make it in year one, year two, year three, year four. And I'm going to give you a grid that you can then evaluate your current ministries. This one tool is a tool I've used multiple times, still continues in our church, that makes sure we stay on point programmatically. So I'm going to give you a grid that you can use to drop your ministries into to show you exactly where you're in need, exactly where you're overdone, and what adjustments need to be made. It's simple, but it is very helpful, very profound. We're going to talk about creating a pathway, a disciple-making pathway. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers Podcast. Make sure to download a copy of a free ebook by Disciple First called Invest in a Few at discipleship.org/disciplefirst. You'll find dozens of other great discipleship resources at discipleship.org as well. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker.